family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable, the lull before the storm. Doug Grunthe, your host, and we look forward to two hours of conversational improvisation, music from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, an existential wrap-up from our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin. We're going to open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox. That's always fun and chaotic. Uh, The theme will be great collaborations. And helping us with our conversation today, not one but two co-hosts, she is our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate and Saugatarian Socialite Victoria Sullivan. He, you hear on Radio Woodstock on weekends because he plays great music for us, Ron Van Warmer. Among the topics we'll be discussing, the wisdom... Your body knows you are not just thinking with your brain. What is this article talking about? Well, here's a clue, because there's another article we'll be talking about it, about, and that's get angry, try naming it, to tame it. We'll always leave room for surprises because they tend to find us. So, before the deluge, the foot or so of snow coming, We have some good conversation for you. Fasten your seatbelts. Join us for the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. And what's going on with our headsets and our uh, microphones here? They're anticipating the weather coming in, huh? <laughs> yes, they are. I got I got weather going on in my brain here from these headphones. Victoria. Good morning, Doug. A little under the weather, eh? Well, yes. It seems as if my eyes are full of more fluid than they need to be. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were just happy to see me. <laughs> that too. Yeah. <laughs> Tears and, of joy. Exactly. When I see you guys, it's like... Uh, Starting the week. Would you say the emotion is elation, celebration, uh, magnificence? Elation, um, titillation. Overwhelming. Joy, pleasure. The yeah. reason I bring that up is, uh, I, uh, you know, I have a Google feed. Mm-hmm. I don't go on Facebook. I don't do Twitter. I don't do Instagram. I think they're all fabulous technologies. I'm glad they're there. They're connecting people in interesting ways. just doesn't interest me. But I keep tabs on them. But the Google feed I like because while I try to keep my wits about me, the, the Google algorithm will feed me articles that it thinks I will like based on previous articles that I've accessed. And a lot of the times it throws me something I wouldn't have thought about, which is always interesting. And this was one of them because the, the – uh, Journalist is David Brooks. Some of you might recognize him as a venerable journalist for many, many years at the New York Times. He does a lot of TV political stuff, too. He's a moderate Republican, so I'm not particularly interested in his political views. Very bright guy, very moderate in just about everything he talks about, which is not my cup of tea. (laughs) But this he he wrote a column for The Times that was on this podcast. psychologist who's come up with a kind of a strategy of dealing with emotions that's rather interesting i thought it was interesting from him because he's so moderate in his speech in his writing style maybe that's what we call overcompensation he might be a raving lunatic you know (laughs) at home (laughs) or he's like all the middle people in america and that's why they love him well the, the middle america doesn't love him um because he, he, he's an intellectual. But I mean, middle he's, people. He's he's an intellectual, but 
you know, he's not really up there at the top of the cutting edge of intellectuals. He he says sane things. Yeah, that he's sort of. I guess something Midwestern, you know, like Jimmy Stewart or something. Yeah, you know? he, he, there's, there's never any edge to what he does, which is right. why I thought this was interesting because while the way he wrote it and the way the psychologist he's referring to talks about it, there's no edge. But when you dig into it, there's plenty of edge because we're talking about anger. And in a, in a kind of interesting way, almost like a little jujitsu kind of way. So um, I thought yeah, I sent you both the article, and I thought we'd have at it a little Why bit. Why not? Mm. <laughs> See if we can't, if nothing else, get a little anger generated here. <laughs> um, but he starts out with a sentence which got my attention because my favorite subject, over the as listeners know, over the past at least seven or eight years has been... Uh, the human brain, the human mind, particularly as we learn more about it, given our evolving relationship with computer intelligence. And um, so when when I see an article that starts out, this has been a golden age for brain research, that intrigues yes. me. However, not being, although I'm interested in science, my training is philosophy and depth psychology so if it's a highly technical science article i'm not usually that interested but david i figured david brooks is not a scientist either so why is he bringing this up he says we now have amazing brain scans that show which networks in the brain ramp up during different activities right but this emphasis on the brain has subtly fed the illusion that thinking happens from the neck up that's certainly what we've been taught, right? You know, I, I immediately disagreed with that when I read it because <laughs> everything I've read in the last five or ten years suggests exactly the kind of connections that he talks about in it between all the perceptions in and, and feelings in the body and sensations in the body and that the dialogue between the body and the mind is constant and automatic and we're unaware of it. Which is what he's just discovering because he's so moderate, <laughs> he probably never <laughs> he let... missed that. He missed that part. Well, we've always heard about the fright or flight right. thing, but, but we that's still, as far as it ever went. But flight or flight is still thought of as the neck up. Right. It, okay. That's as far as it's gone. I don't know. People know that it, it releases um, adrenaline that runs through your body. I mean, I think the body-mind connection, which he almost suggests at the beginning, we didn't know about, or we've so over-prioritized the brain. I just think that body-mind connection is the wisdom of the last 20 years. Because you live in the greater Woodstock area. Ah, yeah. good. Okay. So you're just one of those hippie <laughs> left-wing freaks that knows this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody <clears throat> thinks that we're sane, do they? Right. Um, but he's actually the, uh, while you're correct that we've known this for quite a while, we haven't for quite a while had M the, the technology of MRIs and uh, CAT scans and stuff that go into the brain where they're literally right. watching which areas of the brain light up. Yes. So now the scientists understand what we understood before. Right. Okay, good. And... <laughs> There, but he's particularly the psychologist he's referencing is paying particular attention to something which hasn't gotten as much focus, and that's the vagus nerve. Mm. Oh, could you bring up a Viva Las Vegas? It's one of my favorite <laughs> songs. Um, do you remember? You, uh, of course, we go right off the subject because we're right brain thinkers here, and we don't want to stick to the subject in a linear way. Do you remember the movie Viva Las Vegas? I didn't watch it or see it or something. What can it I say? It is a must. <laughs> I've, I've seen it probably it is 20, 30 times. Oh, wow. Absolute must. It's, it's Elvis. At I was going to say Elvis. I didn't go for Elvis movies. But he, but, because most of them sucked. But this one <laughs> didn't. was actually not only kitschy fun, uh -huh. it was good music. And well, the music, he was always good music. Well, but the music in his movies wasn't always his best music. Mm. But that's why I didn't go. The theme song that's really cool. Plus, his co star was if Elvis was considered in the now, we're not talking about the fat, you know, drunk Elvis. Uh -huh. uh, he was more fun. We're talking about, and we're not talking about the 50s rock legend when he literally, you know, broke every paradigm there was. 
We're talking about that early 60s Elvis mm. where he came back from the Army. He still had his pipes. Mm-hmm. Still was a great singer. He was a decent actor. And he could still do his moves without being a walking cliche, which he became. And his co-star... Anne margaret and margaret <laughs> was... I didn't even see it, but I know that. So you knew that. <laughs> I did. Uh-huh. That's how iconic this movie is. Yes. And we'll get back to the Vegas nerve in a second. But uh, Anne margaret was the, for most of us 13, 14-year-old boys... As good as sexy as it got. Wow! Right, just as Elvis was as sexy as it got for a lot of women, uh, girls back then. So, and she and Anne Margaret was a really good dancer and a good performer. She wasn't just a pretty face. She 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 was sexy the way she sang and danced. And Elvis and they had a lot of chemistry together. Now. It's the, the the screenplay was not written by Ibsen <laughs> oh, or no. Harold Pinter. Oh, Don't no. get me wrong. Oh, so which is why you didn't see it. But <laughs> but it was fun. It was a fun movie. Right. It, it wasn't what Antonioni. I about it, it wasn't European. It was not Antonioni. No, <laughs> I had I had an older friend. He uh, did the sequel, Viva Secaucus. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. One. I had an older friend, a girl who uh, took us to uh, movies, and we would go and see. They had three Elvis Presley movies playing continuously. And wow. she loved Elvis Presley. So we would go in the afternoon and stay and watch the movies at least twice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was watching um, Ingemar Bergman, I think, probably. Uh, oh, what a laugh right here. Yeah. <laughs> Breaking out into song and dance in the middle of that. <laughs> what can I say? Some you, can't get, dark you can't get further away from Viva Las Vegas than Ingmar Bergman. <laughs> I know. I know. You can't get further and away. And it's hard to mix them. I was going through a dark phase from about <laughs> so 14 wait a minute. to 24. You were listening to Leonard Cohen at the time. <laughs> oh, right. definitely. Well, Leonard, we the learned The darker, love, they're better. Bring it on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let me get this straight. Well, Ron and I, in our separate <laughs> lives, were totally fascinated by Viva Las Vegas. You were into Ingmar Bergman? I think so. <laughs> That's why she's our co-host. That's yeah. why she's our co-host. It adds a little Do you variety. have Viva Las Vegas up there? Yeah, I think we can play a little Viva Las Vegas. Viva! Go to the end. The, the end is, is so, it's a great end. Oh, let's hear you. How good is that? <laughs> right, like said it gonna set my soul. Oh, come on. I love his singing. How good is this? He, he's good. <laughs> get those stakes on fire. <laughs> it's very American. <laughs> you realize there is not an atom of Igmar Bergman in this performance. There is not. <laughs> and not uh, any of the French directors no. or the Italian directors. There's no Truffaut here. Later, Werner Herzog. No, it's just... <laughs> It's not here. I wouldn't sleep a minute away. Oh, there's blackjack and poker and the roulette wheel. The fortune one and all. Not the roulette wheel, the roulette wheel. <laughs> two hours of two minutes of energy. And 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 Margaret was shaking her body. Oh my oh, God! Wow. Unbelievable. How many revolutions? That probably would have annoyed me. You see, <laughs> <laughs> a fellow redhead. Come on. I was into Jean Belmondo. Oh, stop! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we were talking about the. We were going to talk about the Vegas nerve. Okay. But we'll yeah. probably spend the next hour and a half on Viva Las Vegas. <laughs> the Vegas nerve. <laughs> <laughs> the Las Vegas nerve. How we digress. Yeah. So let's get back to the Vegas nerve. But but we're going to play more of that. Don't worry. We're going to get some more of that. Where is the Vegas nerve located in the body? Well, let's see. If we, uh, actually, I, I got another Science Daily article. You ready? Yep. Um, gut branches of vagus nerve essential components of brain's reward and motivation system. Now we got people's attention. Yeah. I mean, we got Christmas, Hanukkah, Thanksgiving. <laughs> this is reward and motivation time, right? The, the vagus nerve is the largest cranial nerve that goes from the brain 
right down to the intestinal tract. Mm. Let's ah. see here. Um, according to research conducted at Mount Sinai, not not the not the Israeli. Mount. <laughs> oh, come on, God said this, right? <laughs> this was he sent it down in tablets, and you can start a hospital. Way, <laughs> you know what yeah. they missed? They missed the boat when Elvis was still good, like when he was doing Viva Mount Sinai. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All what right. a concept! Get it all together. Viva Ten Commandments. Yeah, he could do, he could do like a Ten Commandment thing, you know. He could be a Palestinian. I think no. Charlton Heston would be upset. <laughs> and you'd have these really sexy women in like, like Mideast garb, mm. like holding up the one through ten. And those Mideastern women are very sexy, particularly when they're wearing a burqa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, the study, we digress again. Yes. This study from the Mount Sinai Medical School, uh, Hospital in New York City provides a concrete link between the visceral organs. Now, I looked up viscera refer, can refer to any of the internal organs, but usually it refers specifically to the intestinal tract. And as you pointed out, we've talked about it frequently on this show. We're fortunate to live in the Mid-Hudson Valley, which has for 30, 40 years had really top-level nutritionists who understood for decades that the key to health is the intestinal tract. It's the seat of the immune system. And it, it consists of trillions of microbes, bacteria, good and bad. And there's a war going on all the time between the good and the bad, which explains us. Yeah. Um, the vagus nerve is the longest of the cranial nerves. It contains motor and sensory fibers. It passes through the neck and thorax to the abdomen. Traditionally, scientists believe the nerve exclusively mediated suppressive functions, such as feeling full or hungry. In contrast, circulating hormones were thought to convey reward signals from the gut to the brain. But this study, and this is from 2018, so this is mm -hmm. pretty new, this study, for the first time, reveals the existence of a neuronal population of reward neurons amid all the sensory cells of the right branch of the vagus nerve. And um, neurons are the cells in our brains that transmit electrical impulses. One of the huge, most important subjects we could be thinking about and understanding is the similarities and differences between computer intelligence and human intelligence. Because the last 20 years has been a real comeuppance for the human side. Because every time humans said, well, okay, it beat the best chess player, but it'll never be able to do this, it does that in the next 10 years. Then it says, well, it'll never do this, and it does that in the next two years. Okay? So we better get off our high horse and stop saying what computers can't do because we don't know their limitations yet. But... We don't know their thinking limitations. They can't sing and dance like Elvis. They not yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but there is certainly a, one of the differences is computers don't feel. They can mimic emotions, but they can't actually feel emotions. And that's because their brains don't work through feelings. As we're learning more about the fact that our brains are more controlled by feelings than we think. And Brooks does something very, brings out of this research the key move, which is we've talked about before, which is reversing figure and ground, but we'll get to that because that's, that's the trick here that's important. But what's only been discovered relatively recently, thanks to computer technology such as MRIs and CAT scans, is that not we not only is the mind and body connected physically as well as psychologically but there are neurons in our intestinal tract neurons were supposed to only be in the brain that's the key to, to the key to the way our brains work are neurons which transmit electrical signals through synapses etc but it turns out that the vagus nerve has neurons mm. So literally, our thinking... It's like the Silk Road from the brain to the gut. Yeah, a good analogy. And mm. it's also, when we say, I have a gut feeling, we know what that means. But it turns out that gut feeling is 
the precursor to most of our thoughts, which we thought were coming from our brain first. Mm. They're not. The impulses, the electrical circuits in our brain are actually reacting to feeling emotions coming up from the vagus nerve. And not just emotions, but people, some people don't feel pain because most of us feel pain and we think it's some kind of automatic thing. But pain, you, you're injured and you get a message in your brain that you're injured mm-hmm. and then you feel the pain. But if that part of your pain, of your brain has a problem, there are people who can't feel pain and Correct. it's really dangerous. They can put their hand on a hot stove mm-hmm. and burn And there are themselves. times when you, have, you, you can be in such pain that you don't actually feel it. Like you can break a bone in a traumatic traumatic situation. Right, stuff comes floating in right away to and, stop you from feeling. But that's you your brain something, sending something in, I right. think, to stop that's it. That's the brain being proactive. But um, so the it, it, this vagus nerve is, is becoming a big deal in research because it has a lot to do with the way we think as well as the way we feel. So having opened up with that, let's go back to David Brooks's article. Now let's go to Viva Las Vegas. Give me a little more of Elvis. <laughs> That's such a great, God, that felt good. I mean, we got a foot of snow coming. I'm gonna keep on the run. I'm gonna have me some fun. Me all right, all right. We'll get back to the article here. It's hard to go from David Brooks to Elvis Presley, but we'll try it. Okay. So this is back to Brooks's article. We give him credit for bringing this up. The vagus nerve is one of the pathways through which the body and brain talk to each other in an unconscious conversation. And that's the interesting thing, I think, that saying unconscious, because Mm -hmm. I think people have a hard time grasping this because the brain works so quickly that it's hard to know. Is it working on its own or is it taking a cue from the body? Well, we're learning that more and more it's taking a cue from the body. Exactly. So much of this conversation is about how we are relating to others. Human thinking is not primarily about individual calculation but about social engagement and cooperation now we've been talking on this show and in my talks that i do i identify three shifts that are taking place in consciousness and one of them the key is a shift from individual intelligence to collaborative intelligence uh, which we can now do better thanks to computer technology if we learn to use our brains along with the computer brains, combine our talents. Um, We were taught the heroic tradition. We were taught that history is about great individuals doing great things. That's only a part of history. It's it's like saying, okay, we're going to learn about icebergs, but we only study the part that we can see above the water. Well, we know the vast majority of the iceberg is what? Below the water, Mm -hmm. which is, call that the unconscious. It's a perfect analogy in many ways. Um, but we still get stuck on this heroic tradition. That's why we have the president we have. Is because he's no, it's serious because he's seen as a hero against the tide of of progressive thinking and multiculturalism. And what are every time I f- I actually can empathize with someone who didn't get a good education, who, um, who's in a rural area, turns on the TV and every and they see every time they turn on the TV, there's. There's an African-American face, a Mexican face, an Asian face, a woman in power. Um, What's going on? What happened to our white Christian male-dominated nation? Well, the answer is it's gone. Okay. But they don't want to admit that. So, again, the gut controls the brain. Um, But this is true. This is just as true of Albert Einstein, you know, as— He just had a very smart gut. Well, no, he just knew how he, he, he was able to combine things in different ways. But he, as we've talked about, his discovery was not based on logical thinking. The logical thinking of the day went totally contrary to what he discovered, which is why no one else discovered it before him, because they said that can't be, that's just not logical. Uh, he had more of a right hemisphere, intuitive, creative sense of the world. But... The point is that what, even though it's sometimes hard to recognize when we pick up a newspaper or, 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 or uh, go on our digital screen to get news and see wars going on all over the world, the fact is the reason Homo sapiens has dominated the planet for thousands of years is because of our ability to be social and cooperative with one another. Mm-hmm. 
Otherwise, you wouldn't have towns. You wouldn't have cities. And the last time I looked, and listen, we know there's a lot of native intelligence in animals. But they haven't built cities yet. Maybe they don't want to. Maybe they don't want to. <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me when I'm driving here at uh, you know five o'clock in the morning, and I see people stopping at red lights. They they do it. They follow the rule. Right. There's no traffic, but they still follow the rule and they wait till it turns green to go. Most of them. Right now, is now, that and you think that's crazy? Is well, that think, cooperation or is that fear of being uh, of getting a ticket? It's 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 an interesting combination. Well, I think it's well, cooperation. How about watching out for just the fact that somebody might be going ninety miles an hour somewhere near you, and if you're not stopped at that red light, you know, I mean, it's I a very it, small risk, but that people actually <laughs> follow the rules that well, I think is pretty amazing. I'll give you. I'll give you. Uh, I happen to agree with you. I think it's it's all these things. That's the the point. But there is a level of cooperation. I'll give you to me a great example, practical example of cooperation, and that's the Kingston traffic circle. <laughs> <laughs> that's the worst. <laughs> because whoever invented this probably loved, liked Escher paintings. You know what I'm uh-huh. saying? I mean, it's dyslexic. The, I think a dyslexic. <laughs> I think it's it. brilliant. There should be there should be ten. Pretty serious accidents every day. Yeah, there should be. Because there's always a lot of traffic, including buses coming off the throughway, including trucks, uh, including cars, including every variation of, of, of driver from talented and aware to totally uncoordinated and, un, and not paying attention. Who don't know how to use a traffic right. circle. Who don't know how to use a traffic right. circle. They change lanes in the middle of the circle. And yet, there are very few accidents in there. Yeah. Why? It's not because of fear of cops or anything like that. It's, it's a, it's, 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 there's a certain unconscious and conscious level of cooperation yeah. that we human beings have in our brains. We're hardwired for it. And, uh, but we screw up a lot of times because of our anger, and that's what we're going to get to. When we come back, we're going to talk about the vagus nerve and how it relates to anger and how this psychologist, who's a little dry, like David Brooks, but... Very smart because she's come up with a way, a very a practical way, that we can not so much control our anger, but use it much more effectively. Uh, so we'll get to that and a little more Elvis when we come back with more of the Woodstock Roundtable. Las Vegas with your neon flashing and your one-arm bandits crashing all those homes down the drain. Las Vegas turning day into night. Uh, this is the Woodstock Roundtable, and I'm Doug Grunthy, your host. We have two co-hosts today. Every other week, uh, Victoria joins us. She's our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate, so that means we get a poem from you a little later on. You do. And Ron Van Wormer, you hopefully recognize as the keeper of good music here on weekends. And I won't do a poem. You won't? No. But you'll play music when we leave. (laughs) I will play music. (laughs) Maybe you can just tap behind me. Okay, I can do that. (laughs) So we're talking about some articles about the vagus nerve, and we can't say vagus without playing this. (laughs) (laughs) At a swing in time. I'm going to give it everything All right. I've got. So um, the vagus nerve turns out to be one of the most important parts of our body. It's the longest cranial nerve that goes from our brain through what's called the viscera, through around the heart, down to, into the intestines. The intestinal tract is the seat of our immune system. But now what we're learning, thanks to the um, crafty integration of human intelligence and computer intelligence, is that the, the vagus nerve has neurons. Now, that surprised scientists because we thought neurons were only in the brain. The neuron is the basic cell of the brain that transmits electrical impulses. But there are neurons in the vagus nerve. So what are the ramifications of all this? Let's get into it here. We're, we're reading from an article, David Brooks, called The Wisdom Your Body Knows. And then we'll get into an article from someone named a, journal, a science journalist, Micheline Duclef. Okay, so here we go. The vagus nerve is a pathway through which the body and brain talk to each other in unconscious conversation. Human thinking, it turns out, is not primarily about individual calculation the way we were taught. 
Human thinking is mostly about social engagement and cooperation. What does this have to do with the vagus nerve? Okay. The psychologist he's referencing is named Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's from Northeastern University. And she says, quote, You might think, this is really a cool reversal of figure ground. You might think that in everyday life, the things you see and hear influence what you feel. That makes sense, right? Yeah. Is she actually challenging this? You might think that in everyday life, the things you see and hear influence what you feel, but it's mostly the other way around. What we feel alters what we see and hear. Hmm. And that's something going ah, back that's to a little you counterintuitive. Yes, very good. <laughs> she uh, wrote a book called How Emotions Are Made. Um, now, let's just think about this for a second. Wait a minute. We think we're these rational, intelligent creatures that can learn math and grammar and science. And once in a while, they'll throw in a little literature and art. And that we can rationally get through the world. No. That's the story we tell ourselves. In fact, now that we can see how these impulses work through you know, technology... In fact, what we feel that, that first happens unconsciously in the gut, those neurons in the gut send signals up to our brain, which then translate them. Now, this takes a split second, but it, there is a time lapse involved. So that, in fact, what we think we're seeing is not objective. It's colored, and you correctly call it projection. What we see is what we project onto what we're looking at, whether it's another person or another object. So, yeah, most of the time we can agree that what that maple tree looks like. But we're all seeing it differently because we've had different experiences around trees. And if you put that into a social context... It, it it explains a lot of um, responses like racism mm-hmm. because the immediate seeing that the other person is something, then the emotion of fear or rejection colors it so that the person becomes bigger, stronger, more fearful. Correct. So um, basically – More fear-inducing. She's, she's doing a reversal of figure ground. It's not so much what we see and think makes us feel a certain way, but the reverse. What we're unconscious feeling, which has to do with our genetic dispositions, things that we were born with. It has to do with our upbringing, everything from early childhood through adolescence and adulthood, those emotions that build up in our system, the prejudices we have the rewards we've received in the past, the, penalty, the, 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 the pain we've received in the past, all this is remembered in our gut. Right. And they have neurons. And so they're sending, up, they're sending up impulses that we are not aware of a split second before we are conscious that we're looking at something or thinking about something. So if you, saw, if you had a severe allergy to shrimp and you saw the shrimp, you're reaction would be very different to the reaction of somebody who loved shrimp right and and didn't have a severe but reaction yes but that but then someone could say yeah but that's because we're rational if in the past i've had a horrible reaction to shrimp i know when i look at that shrimp it's not good for me therefore i'll see it differently that's how we were taught but it doesn't quite work that way and it's easy to say if we're allergic to shrimp of course it's going to look differently to us but it's 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 the subtle parts of it that when we're looking at something, we need – here's her, her takeaway from all this. Uh-huh. What is – okay, it might be interesting, but what difference does it really make that we're, in fact, thinking – what we're thinking is being influenced by a split-second unconscious impulse before we see or think, and that colors the way we see it. What it means is, is that if we are reactive all the time, we're not going to be very happy. And we're not going to make other people very happy because we're simply reacting, whereas what we need to do is get a little bit of a distance before we react to something. 
And um, she gets into a, some specific strategies for that, which we'll get into. Um, she calls it, and I'm not crazy about the term, emotional granularity. That's, that's, you know, a, that's I an academic that he had, term. He had that in his article, too, though. I kind of liked it almost from a linguistic point of view because one of the things that's bothered me in political discourse and particularly with our president is the lack of nuance. Mm -hmm. And one of the things <clears throat> she gets into with the granularity is that you have to separate from that's bad to why is that bad. Yes, and we're going to get into that. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> as, In fact, as you described it, I'm realizing it's probably a pretty good term. Granularity, help me out here, Miss former English professor. <laughs> As I understand granularity, granularity is something that moves something from abstract to more particular or more abstract to more concrete. It's, it's more concrete as opposed to amorphous, uh -huh. right? Something that's granular, I'm thinking, right? Yeah. I just immediately bought how <clears throat> she used it that um, it, it lends itself to distinctions. Ah, well said. Because what she's saying is, and we'll get to her article now. Um, oh, it's not her article. It's uh, Micheline Duclef, who's a science journalist. She gets into it in a very practical way. She did a good job here. I'll read from her article. Over the past three years, I've had one major goal in my personal life, to stop being so angry. Wow. By the way, if you don't think we all have a healthy dose of unconscious rage and anger, you're not paying attention. Anger has been my emotional currency. That's a good line, mm -hmm. right? Because if we think about it, and we know our thinking is dependent on our gut, emotion is like currency. It's like money. The reason we're so often out of control emotionally is because unconsciously it feels somehow like we're being rewarded with currency you know mm -hmm. my anger it makes me feel alive in a way even though it's causing me pain and the person i'm angry about pain um so here's how she dealt with it she ends up going to the same source that brooks went to this psychologist lisa feldman barrett she said i brought these skills to my 20-year marriage why are you yelling my husband would say i'm not I'd retort, oh, wait, on second thought, you're right, I am yelling. In other words, this gets back to that vagus nerve again. She was so, and she's not alone, uh, addicted, if you will, to just as soon as something didn't feel right in the gut, she would express anger. That three years ago, an earthquake hit our home. We had a baby girl, and all I wanted was the opposite. I wanted my baby girl to grow up in a peaceful environment to learn other ways of handling uncomfortable situations and just getting angry. So I went to therapy. I kept cognitive behavioral therapy worksheets. I took deep breaths. I counted to 10. I walked out of rooms. I even meditated at night. Good line coming up. These strategies helped me manage the anger, but they didn't decrease it. It was like keeping a feral horse in a barn. What a good analogy. <laughs> I've never heard of a feral horse before. Wild horses, yes. Feral horse, mm. no. That's scary. That's well, a good feral image. is a better word than wild because it sounds more oh, ominous. I know. I know. It's awful. I mean, one thinks of fisher cats. <laughs> a feral cat in a cage. Yeah. Um, so feral meaning wild, right? Undomesticated. Then six months ago, I was talking with, here she is, Lisa Feldman Barrett, the same one Brooks referenced, a psychologist at Northeastern University. At the end of our hour-long interview, she tossed out this suggestion. You could increase your emotional granularity. <laughs> if someone said that to me, I'd get angry. What the My emotional <clears throat> what? Go learn more emotion words and emotion concepts from your culture and other cultures she had. Now, that sounds like a dry, academic, thanks but no thanks response. But it turns out she's onto something here pretty specific and, and, and therapeutic. Over the past 30 years, um, Barrett has found evidence that anger isn't one emotion but a whole family of emotions. Learning to identify different members of that anger family is a very powerful tool for regulating anger, studies have shown. 
Better yet, as I found, this is the uh, journalist, go and make up your own anger categories and start using them. Hmm. Now, we'll give some of the specific examples that she used very successfully. <clears throat> uh, the idea is that anger is one of several basic emotions that are universal. It's like a reflex. It's hardwired in our brain. In other words... We are wired to get angry. Why? Because in our, at a certain point in our primary, primary past, that anger or fear of de- it was, a, was part of survival. And animals have it. Yeah. You know, they quickly bare their teeth or something. Mm-hmm. They have an immediate it's a survival. pose that they take that, that expresses <clears throat> anger and drives a lot of their foes away. Yeah, it's a survival technique. So we don't want to get rid of it. First of all, if the only way to get rid of it is that probably to either operate on your gut or take out parts of your brain. <clears throat> We're hardwired to be angry. The question is, how can we maybe control it a little better? When something unjust or unfair happens to you, your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate will go up, you'll probably breathe more heavily, there'll be a reddening of the skin, then you'll have an urge to punch or yell at someone. <laughs> this is hardwired. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and we know that just we know just as we know of the chaos that's caused when that anger is out of control, <clears throat> it we know it's a re, it's horribly unhealthy to suppress anger. Right, and some people see they don't have any, and you're like, looking well, at them, oh, really? Yeah, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> you sat on that <clears throat> one well. <laughs> uh-huh. So there you are. We're, it sounds like a paradox. We don't want to just spill out our anger all over the place. We've been around those people. But if we suppress it too much, we make ourselves sick. So here's her story. Um, what you feel when you're angry depends on the situation what your past experiences are, how your culture has taught you to respond. As a result, there's actually enormous variation in the types of anger around the world. In other words, we think of it as just kind of a monolithic universal emotion. It's not. In the U.S., we have a lot of exuberant anger, like when you're getting pumped up to compete in a sport or you know, get that business project done. Or sad anger when your spouse or boss doesn't appreciate you. When you look at other cultures, the variations escalate. Hmm. <clears throat> now, the first one she uses, I couldn't stop laughing hysterically. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Ron, <clears throat> would you go to Google, please? <laughs> <clears throat> and put in a pronounce. Here's what's so great about the web. There's this crazy German word that she uses, ah, right? Yeah, it probably has many syllables. And I have no idea how to pronounce this thing. But it's a really cool wor- word. Not only the way it sounds, but when you, re- when you hear what it means. The type of anger it's describing. So pronounce, you ready? B-A-C-K. P, as in Peter, F. E-I-F again, as in Frank. E-N, we're not done yet. G E S I C H T. Now, how would you back Pfeifengeist? Gesundheit. <laughs> now, here, let's hear how we pronounce it. They'll tell us on, uh, on YouTube. Back Pfeifengesicht. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear that again. Yes, please. If you, if you can hear that without laughing. I feel that all the time. In fact, the show sometimes brings that out in me. Wait a minute. Being on this show creates back five and gejeicht in you? I'm kidding since I don't know what it means. What does it mean? What do you think it means? I sometimes, think it's, 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 it's your gut a, reaction. What is that? A, we know it's, it's a type of anger. Right. It's, it's when a duck <clears throat> comes in your house and... and and craps all over your shoes. <laughs> Something like that. It's when yes. a it's when a duck <laughs> defecates on your shoes. Yes. It's exactly no. Uh, give us the g- g- pronounce it. Give us it again. Backpfeifengesicht. Okay. Gesicht. Something said. Backpfeifengesicht. You ready? 
Yeah. It means a face in need of a slap. Ooh, I like it. <laughs> I knew you'd like that. Did you get that? I love that reaction we got from her. Yeah. That Irish redhead sitting next to me just got very happy. <laughs> Your face just got a little red. I love it. You see now I, this is my this is my Thanksgiving treat for you. This word. Can we hear it again, please? Backpfeifengesicht. Backpfeifengesicht. That's a face in need of a slap. Mm. <clears throat> it's like you're so furious with someone, you look at their face, and it's as if their face is urging you to punch them. This is the psychologist talking. <laughs> this is the psychologist. And, and I, like, I suddenly like her a lot more it's than when she was giving us that academic granularity stuff. That, uh, I have that, that feeling Germans. all the time. But, <laughs> but don't you think that Hitler had that feeling hey, too hey, often? Yeah. Hey. Well, I think we all do. Obviously, you can't just throw it on him. I mean, this is something obviously that's more universal or she wouldn't be bringing it up. Yeah. Um, So ancient Greeks differentiated between a short-term anger that doesn't stick around and one with a a long-lasting anger that's more permanent. Now, that makes perfect sense. But we use the same word for both in English, right? right? But why would you have the same word for something that's... um, Something that's that's long term, a long lasting anger. Right. Something has been bothering you for years versus mm. something that gets you angry and then you forget about it. But we use the same word, and so what she's saying is when we do that, she's saying there's not enough granularity in that. Mm-hmm. We're just too reactive every time our gut. Remember, it's happening unconscious first before we see or even think of. Before we see that face, we feel needs to be slapped. We're, there's a there's a feeling coming up from the vagus nerve, right. from the gut, and which could have something to do from our childhood or something that happened yesterday. We don't know, but. Part of getting a little distance so that we don't just automatically start slapping every face that we think deserves it, <laughs> although probably not a bad idea, um, might wake us all up a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, instead of back slapping, let's have some face slapping. <laughs> um, uh, since we probably shouldn't go around slapping people's faces all the time, even though we are, might feel justified, by creating more labels to realize there are dozens of different types of anger over time helps us express it in a healthier way and not necessarily react to it physically, unless it deserves to be. Um, So the Greeks uh, differentiated what makes perfect sense. There was one word, I uh, I can't pronounce it, uh, for (laughs) short-term anger that doesn't stick around and a totally different word for long-lasting anger that's permanent. In Mandarin Chinese, there's a specific word for anger directed toward yourself. Mm. And it means it's a combination of regret and hate. The Thais have at least seven degrees of anger. A Thai linguist said, we don't walk around saying I'm angry. And we do. We Americans do that, right? I'm angry. Or I'm ticked off or whatever. Meaning the same thing, right? We, mm. we use one basic word or one basic emotion mm. for all the situations that, that, where that emotion has different shades. The Thai linguist said, we don't walk around saying, I'm angry, that's too broad. We may start with, I'm displeased or I'm dissatisfied, then increase the intensity depending on the situation. In India, there's a treasure trove of angers. Here's my favorite. You ready? (laughs) Angry at the cow that came into the house and refused to leave and you couldn't hurt it because you're a Hindu. That's backpfeifenschgeist. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. That's the German for the face that needs a slap. That's a... The face of a cow that needs to slap. The bovine that needs to slap. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, you cannot say that word without laughing. It's impossible. I dare you to try it. You cannot say backpfeifengeist without laughing. I'm sorry. And then you want to hit somebody. Then you want to hit somebody. But make sure you slap them in the face. Otherwise, it doesn't have any meaning. That's right. But here's a great one from India. They actually have a word... For anger, which means, for, for an anger which feels, which, which is like eggplant hitting hot oil. Wow. Sputtering. Mm. How specific is that? Yeah, a good. sputter, yeah. yeah that, that sputtering sizzle. By the way, it's a short term, here's a short term anger because I love to cook. And 
<laughs> most of my cooking techniques that I learned from top chefs are at high heat rather than low mm. heat. And so it's not uncommon. You heat that thing up a little, too, and then you throw. It doesn't yep. have to be eggplant, and yep. boom, the oil gets on on your skin. Uh-huh. I scream like a banshee. Like a banshee. Like a banshee. That's an interesting little what phrase. What is a banshee, by the way? Isn't that like a, some native from New Guinea or something? I think it's Would you look Africa. up banshee? Would you look up yeah. banshee for I us? I think or? banshees are African, but we can see if it's New Guinea or Africa. Yeah. But it's definitely a, a word for a primitive type of behavior. Right, but but, but, but I, I think they scream like an, 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 an anger, it. which means like when eggplant hits hot oil. <laughs> that is so cool. Yes, that you would have that specificity about anger. Yes. Okay, here comes Banshee. Uh, it's a female spirit in Irish mythology. What? Who Whoa! The death what? Of and a you're Irish. Member. What? We oh, learned on. something today. Well, we are, we're, we're not dealing with that one. <laughs> we'll put that one right down in Central Africa. Yeah, it her- it's not Irish at all. The, the banshee heralds the death of a family member, usually by wailing, shrieking, or wow, how like uh, a banshee. Yeah. Okay. A banshee. Wow. I didn't know it was Irish. Never well, had any idea. Well, now there I'm going to do that when I'm pissed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> howl like a banshee. No, wh- I like wailing. Wailing is wailing. Good. What a great. I haven't wailed in a long. I got to <laughs> practice my wailing. I'm not sure I've ever wailed. I think no? it's very out in America. To wail? Yeah. But you we know, scream. These, Screaming is not the same as wailing. These no. multiple ways of describing anger. I think in the Brooks article, the thing that interests me was this thing like when somebody cited, and he cited a scientist who says when kids are little, when they're really young and they're upset, they'll say to their mother, I hate you, when what they really mean is I don't feel good or right. something bad right. is happening. And that's what made me think about political discourse today with the calling someone good or bad. Like, And when I listen to Europeans, their vocabulary is such more com- more complex. So when you hear these guys in Parliament in England insulting each other, oh, they're, great. they're not <laughs> saying good or bad. They have a long string of... <laughs> Very explicit words uh-huh. that describe like, exactly what. Like and it's your more face needs a slap, or you remind me of eggplant hitting hot oil. But I think it's it's a it's a difference in emotion and intellect that when you work on having a vocabulary that can get into nuance. I mean, I think we have to modify anger in the United States. We have to say something like, "Well, I'm a little angry," or. That seems to be anger-provoking. How dare you do that? But, but you know, just not like, <laughs> I'm angry. You know, that's good. That's bad. We hate this one. We love this one. You know, when you can't describe the thing more closely, uh, whatever it is, and I, particularly in, in situations of, of political negotiations and things, and I actually, and we won't get into the whole uh, impeachment thing. But some of the people in the State Department so impressed me. And part of what impressed me was some of them were not happy to be there. Some of them were not happy to describe what was going on. But they all had great emotional control. Mm-hmm. So that if if some was qu- someone was questioning them in an aggressive way and, and tried to put words in their mouths, they would just calmly say, no, I don't believe that's what I said. And yet you know? there are <laughs> other times when anger is the appropriate response and the creative response and the necessary response. So, for example, do you think, and I'm giving it away because the psychologist identifies it, there's actually a loving anger. And that sounds like a oxymoron, mm-hmm. a loving anger. Turns out, um, according to the psychologist, there's a very interesting anger that's a loving anger. You express this emotion toward a spouse yeah. or a loved one, when he or she has angered you, but you can't help them, only love them. It's a mixed bag of love, grief, sorrow, and anger. And I, think and I have felt that. As soon as you said that, I thought of spouses and your children. Your the children. People that you really love, and they've made you angry. Mm-hmm. Or their behavior. Or their behavior is hurting themselves. Well, I think, and it makes I you think angry. you see it when a so child... So that's why there's grief and sorrow right. in the... And as well as anger. Right. When, when a child runs out in traffic... A parent is angry right. and and loving at the same time right. because you're, yes, well, you're, you're, you're pissed that the kid ran out on the road because you've told him not to, but you still can't help but want to, you know. Yes. Hold so, him. what's the point of all this? It's not just an academic exercise. Yeah. There's actually a practical reward in all this, and we'll get to the punchline. Then we'll continue after the break. 
In many ways, anger is like wine. Here comes the analogy. There are many varietals, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, but each vintage has its own unique combination of aromas, flavors, and potency. The more practice you have at detecting and naming these nuances, the better you understand wine. If you learn to detect the various flavors and nuances of anger and label them, you can start to handle your anger better. Remember what the journalist said at the beginning. She's really smart. First, she admitted that she had chronic anger. And she, it was, she was tired of it and her husband was tired of it. And then they have a baby girl and she says, I can't let this continue. And, but when she took the therapy, when she took the yoga class and she did the meditation and she learned to count to 10, she said, yes, that would help. But it didn't lessen my anger. So it was like putting a feral horse in a bus nerve again. Our brain is being hit with a with a hard raw emotion and if we don't learn to start making these distinctions we're just going to be reactive all the time and sometimes that reaction is appropriate but obviously not always just take a look around how the world's working if you need evidence of that so psychologists cause this this strategy of starting to recognize different gradations and variations of anger and they said if you want to make up your own types of anger and give them names do it I'm the point is it gives us a little bit of distance from the reactive i wonder if this research has gone into these anger management classes because there's a huge number of them now for abusive spouses and things mm. well what happened was this psychologist wanted to get in but the woman giving the workshop wouldn't let her in she was too angry <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of a little bit of a weird ir irony there. Not yeah. making that up. But psychologists, <laughs> psychologists call this strategy emotional granularity. I still don't love the term. But anyway, studies show the more that a person has, the less likely they are to shout or hit someone who's hurt them. They're also less likely to binge drink when stressed. Hmm. And, and you can substitute binge drink for binge eat or binge whatever. Um. On the other hand, people diagnosed with major depressive disorder are more likely to have low emotional granularity compared to healthy adults. There's a whole arm of research showing how functional it is to have finely tuned categories for our experiences. Now, you can take any good idea and take it to an extreme. Uh, I certainly have no intention of making a list of all my emotions and then start to create grades. Okay? <laughs> or names for but it. But there, there is a certain wisdom when we're at it, when we're when when the emotions out of control, right? Because none of us like being emotionally out of control. <clears throat> it usually has more penalties than rewards. Mm -hmm. And the, what makes it so hard is, and now we understand, because our thinking is not rational. It's it, it starts with impulses coming up from the intestinal tract. All those gut emotions and feelings that we've built up over a life, not just our lifetime, by the way but our ancestors' lifetime, because we have those genes in us too. And those genes create sensations and feelings based on experiences. So sometimes the healthiest and most productive result is to react. But when it's not working, like this journalist says, and we realize we're just chronically angry, this is a, a good, this turns out to be a pretty good strategy. And I think for some emotion like boredom, it would work equally mm -hmm. well because, you know, why are you bored? And if you call it ennui, it already has like a more exciting French Yeah, as soon as you give it a French name, right. <laughs> it becomes more important on some level. But little kids, again, For example, say, I'm bored. And what do they really mean? Are they hungry? Are they tired? Do they bet, not have a game they like to play? I bet Bergman had a lot of names for that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> angst. Dark yeah. angst. Yeah, it's very dark, this angst. It's, it's like a long night in Norway in the middle of the winter. Yeah, you get the rifle out. In high school, when the most important thing to me was hitting a tennis ball and eating large quantities of food, fortunately I was thin, somehow I had this girlfriend who was very intellectual because I wasn't at that time. I, didn't, I wasn't much into reading. So when this would be 1968, so when a Dylan song came on, she would explain it to me because I had no idea. Right? So she was very cool. And I'm still not clear what she saw in me, but at any rate, um, uh, she power. insisted that we go to an Ingmar Bergman film. And I really <laughs> liked her, and I just so wanted to please her. So, of course, I went. 
It's intolerable. <laughs> it was intolerable. <laughs> it made demands. <laughs> you know what I thought as I'm like, like, like about 10 minutes in, I'm really trying hard, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying the guy's not a genius. He is. I'm just saying <laughs> it bored the crap out of me. You know what I felt I needed? I needed a little, I needed a little hit of uh-huh. kind of Anne Margaret with a little Elvis Presley. Time. You know, I kind of needed this. Doug, on the personal note, at that same period when I would meet guys, my test would be if they'd never read Kafka, I couldn't go out with them. Oh, my God. We wouldn't have spoken two syllables to each other. The only way I read Kafka if he's a tennis player. I think I actually said to someone once, well, if you hadn't re- haven't read Kafka, I don't think we can have any kind of connection. I've known people like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You want to slap their face, I, right? Yeah, I knew. Give us that Back Ger- in Feinstein's. Yeah, give us that German word again. <laughs> yeah. If nothing else, we had a... Backpfeifengesicht. Ah. We'll be right back. If someone had said that to me. Oh, if only... Look into my 